Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. So, Travis, Kelsey, and Taylor Swift, am I right? Like, it's a whole thing. Like, it's a weird week when that is the thing that people are obsessed with. I mean, I'm really glad that Travis Kelsey is getting to, like, help a young lady out in her career by giving her some notoriety. Um, but, like, you know, it's a, it's a whole thing. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, my name is Christopher Lytle. I'm the executive minister here at Area 10. Uh, and I'm just super grateful to be able to, to share with you some stuff today. Uh, in December of 2016, I found myself having to wrestle through two questions that were really challenging. Uh, the first was, why am I not happy? Um, and the second was, why am I not content? And on paper, uh, the fact that I was even asking those questions just didn't really make sense. I had a good job, lots of room for advancement, um, making good money. My wife and daughter were doing well, respectively, in their lives. We had a great dog, reliable car, nice house. We got to go on vacations. I had friends, hobbies. For all intents and purposes, my life was good, but I was utterly miserable. And if you know me, me being miserable in December just doesn't seem right. Like, I'm so into the holidays that I annoy people with it. And I, that, that year, I was just like, I, I, I don't want to be around anyone. I'm just, I'm, I'm miserable. And people I talked to, they were like, oh, so you're depressed. And I'm like, no, don't do that. Like, like I, I, di- depression takes a diagnosis, right? And we, we live in a time where it's like if someone's sad, it's like, oh, I'm depressed. And it's like, no, you're sad. And here's the thing. I understand depression. I have experienced and had been diagnosed with depression when I was younger. I deal with anxiety. I know what that feels like. This wasn't it. I was just deeply, deeply unhappy and extraordinarily um, discontent. And, and I couldn't figure out why. And so over the course of about 11 months, I began to talk with people and pray with people, talk to old mentors, new me- mentors, um, talking with my wife, Leanne, just trying to figure stuff out. And I came across a quote by St. Augustine, and he says, every person, whoever, whatever, whatsoever his condition, desires to be happy. And the first time I read that, I was like, yeah, no, duh. Like, yes, everyone desires to be happy. That was a waste of my time. Great. Okay, moving on. But I kept coming back to that quote. And I kept getting stuck on that word desires. And over the course of those, those months going into 2017, I began to realize that my desire for happiness was outpacing my actual life. Nothing in my life was really bad. There were, there were certainly moments of discomfort, moments of conflict, like as, as any life has. But my life was, by and large, not bad. But my desire for happiness was so far away from the happiness that I could actually be enjoying in that moment. And that what was kicking up this this kind of misery and this this discontentedness. As I talk to people then, and even when I talk to people now about happiness, one of the things that I hear pretty often is that um, your level of happiness uh, is, is one of the most important factors to dictate your level of contentment. So the happier you are, the more content you will be. The less happy you are, the less content you will be. And that makes sense. And I think if we look at our lives, we see how we believe this and we think this. Because we will say things like, if I could just make more money, then I'd be happy. 
if I could live in this type of house with this type of kitchen, then I'd be happy. If I could, if, if I could be um, just admired by my peers, if my kids would listen to what I'm saying, if my spouse could just see the real me, if I could just for the life of me finally win one of my matchups in fantasy football, you know who you are because you're in here. He's sitting in the back corner. I'm just going to leave it there. Then finally I'll be happy. I don't mean to hurt you. I love you, man. Like we say these things, right? We give all these qualifiers of what we need to be happy. I would argue that's actually backwards thinking. I would argue that it's, it's your level of contentment that really dictates how happy you are and how actually happy you are. And what I mean by actually happy In 21st century Western mindset of America, we have created happiness solely as this intense, euphoric feeling of joy based on our circumstances. When when throughout the whole of history, that is never how happiness has been looked at. Happiness has always been tied to contentment. Happiness has always been an emotion tied with a mindset that allows you not to be based on your circumstances, but to be able to recognize that regardless if you're having the best day or the worst day, you are still able to survive, thrive, and see beauty and joy in this world. Here's the thing. If your happiness is based off of your circumstances, you are never going to be happy. Ever. Because your circumstances, they always change. They're not fixed, right? They're constantly in flux. Sometimes in great ways, sometimes in terrible ways. But our, but our situation, our circumstances are constantly changing. And so of our happiness, that feeling of eu- euphoric bliss is solely tied to our circumstances. Is it any wonder why so many of us are miserable? Are so discontent with where we're at in our lives. In a recent study that was multi-country, tens of thousands of people, small villages, uh, rural farmers, urban dwellers, these researchers went to all these people and said, here is a list of emotions, and we want you to rank them of the most important emotions to the least important. And the most important being, what are the emotions that you want to cultivate because you know it's going to lead to better flourishing in your life, and which ones are not as important? for you. Overwhelmingly so, across the world, contentment was up at the top, and happiness was down at the bottom. Except for several Western countries, like Canada, eh? America, the UK, France. And what was fascinating to me about this study is that these researchers found that all of those people who highlighted contentment as like the number one emotion to cultivate and to build into your life, and happiness was down at the bottom, those same people, regardless of how rich or poor they were, regardless if they were in a war-torn country, regardless if they had the same technological advancements as other societies, experienced less stress, less anxiety, and less depression than those of the Western countries who had happiness as number one, and contentment down at the bottom. Happiness is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful emotion. I love it. If you know me, I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. Like, I like it. I love it. It's fun. 
But here's the thing. We live in a capitalist country. And don't email me or text me. I'm not saying I hate America. Calm down. Because you, I already know some of you are like, oh, he just said he hates America. No, nope, that's not what I said. But we live in a country where we value the free market more than pretty much anything else. And if we value the free market, that means we are constantly looking for ways to make money. And the moment we find ways that we can make money to get ahead, we are going to do that. So we now live in a country, in a world, at a time when entire businesses and organizations exist just to make you discontent. To convince you that the only way for you to be happy, to achieve this, this, this sense of bliss in your circumstances, is for you to have more. More time, more money, more power, more sex, more authority, more autonomy, more freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want. That you have to look a certain way, that you have to have certain things, that you have to accomplish a certain level of something, then finally you could be happy. And once you're happy, you could finally relax and be content. I don't know where that actually happens. I know very few content people. Today we're gonna dig in to Psalm chapter 1. And the psalmist, he's really talking specifically about this idea, this idea of contentment and, and happiness and the good life. And, and the thing about Psalm 1 is um, it functions as an introduction for us to the rest of the book of Psalms. This series that we're doing, I'm super stoked for it. The book of Psalms is by far my favorite book of the Bible. I love it. I feel seen when I read the book of Psalms because I feel things. I'm a feeler. I feel very deeply <laughs> about everything. And the book of Psalms is a book of emotion. It's 150 different poems and songs and prayers that point to the instruction of God and the wisdom of God and the beauty of God, as well as giving us a voice for things that oftentimes we don't always know how to voice. One of the things I like to think about in the book of Psalms is I, I, I kind of liken it to a Spotify playlist. And on a Spotify, it's just a good play, playlist. Like, you'll read the Psalms and you're like, oh, this is a little bit like R&B. You're like, okay. I see what you're doing there, Psalmist. And then you get to these, these points where it's like, oh, this feels very folky. Like, you could almost hear a mandolin playing in the background. And then you'll get to these weird moments of, like, goth and punk, and you're like, whoa, this is, like, real aggressive. And then there is an unbelievable amount of emo. And if you don't know what emo is... Emo music is, is like sad boy, sad girl music. It's the kind of music that when they play it, even if they're singing about something happy, somehow they still sound sad. Like, my life is great. Like, it's just like super dripping with like, are you happy? Because it doesn't seem like you are. The book of Psalms is real emo. Because what it does is that it connects us with the, the very emotions that guide our lives. And it gives voice and gives us permission to voice deep emotions that we don't always know how to express. Not just joy, not just hope, not just faith, not just love, not just prayer, but emotions of fear and frustration and jealousy and anger and loss and lament. The book of Psalms are such a beautiful book. I, I fully believe that next to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is where we read about Jesus' life and, and read about his teachings, the book of Psalms is the most important book that you can read, reread, and study. Because it encapsulates 
the main themes of the Bible in such a poetic and beautiful way that it's impossible for us not to connect with. Whether you're emotionally constipated or you let your emotions rule your life or somewhere in between, you will find connections in the Psalms. So I'm stoked that we're doing this series. I'm stoked that I get to kick it off with Psalm 1 because this introduction is a little bit different and separate from the rest of the Psalms. And the psalmist is really being remarkably practical. Sometimes we'll read scripture and we'll go, oh gosh, I wonder what that means for my life. I don't know what to do with this. Psalm 1 is very clear. It's, it's incredibly practical. And we're going to take a look at what it means to have a content, happy, and transformed life. So Psalm 1, verse 1, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to that. If not, we're going to throw it up on the screen here in the bird and for you at home. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, please let us know. We'd love to get you a Bible. Nothing against reading the Bible on a phone or an iPad, but there is something uniquely powerful about actually holding the Bible, feeling the pages, and, and looking at those words. So we're going to start in verse 1, and we're just going to talk about the first word for a minute. I promise we won't do that for every word because we'll be here forever. The first word is blessed. We don't have a great understanding of the word blessed today. We think of hashtag blessed, right? We think blessed means my life is gold. I have everything that I want and then some. Everything works out in my favor and I, I have no problems. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no discomfort. That is oftentimes how we think of blessed. That is not how blessed is used really ever in Scripture. There are two Hebrew words that are used for blessed that we see throughout the Bible. One the Hebrew word is, is specifically talking about God's favor towards a person or a group of people. The other type of blessed, which is what we see in Psalm 1, is specifically carrying with it this emotion and mindset of contentment that leads to lasting happiness. So it has nothing to do with your status. It has nothing to do with how much you have. It has to do with the emotional uh, environment that you are creating for yourself, the emotional mindset that you are creating for yourself. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Notice this progression. Walk, stands, sits. This is intentional. Blessed is the man. Content is the man. Happy is the man it, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked meaning the ungodly. The, the person or thing that is morally bankrupt, that's, that's morally backwards. What it's saying is, hey, look, if you, if you really want to be blessed, if you want to experience the good life, if you want to experience actual contentment that leads to happiness, you need to understand where you're being formed. You need to guard against what is forming you and shaping you. If you want to be blessed, who or what is molding and shaping you? What do you Believe, and it's giving us this warning. A blessed person is someone who's not being molded and shaped by people or things that are ungodly, that are morally backwards, and then it leads to nor stands in the way of sinners. Sinning is basically missing the mark. Biblically, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. It's a biblical truth that we see, Old and New Testament. What this is talking about here is those that are intentionally choosing to miss the mark, because we are going to miss the mark. 
It's why Jesus came and died and rose again so that we can experience forgiveness so that our mistakes, our poor choices in the past don't define our lives or our future. We get freedom, we experience grace, we, we come into a right and reconciled relationship with God which changes everything. That is what happens when we give our lives to Christ. We all miss the mark. What this is talking about are those people who are intentionally missing the mark. It is their action. We're moving from belief, the things that we believe in, what is shaping and informing us, to this point of action of how is that playing out in our lives. Blessed, content, happy is the person who's not being molded and shaped by the ungodly or the morally backwards, and who, who isn't intentionally choosing to miss the mark, which is God's instructions to us. And then it lands us in this last place and where sits in the seat of scoffers. And if you were alive in the Old Testament time, you would understand the power of that word sits. Because you would not sit down with anyone unless you knew that is where you belonged and unless you knew you wanted other people to understand that that's where you belonged. Here's what happens. These areas of our lives, we get stuck in, right? We get stuck in these these whirlpools are beginning to be shaped and molded by things that are going to destroy us. We get stuck in these moments and, and loops of intentionally choosing to miss the mark. And we end up stationary, planted in this place where we no longer can see the good, the beauty, the joy of what exists around us. Instead, we become cynical. We become jaded. We become really critical. That is what that word scoffers carries. And let, let, me, let me tell you, show me a person who is cynical. Show me a person who is critical. Show me a person who is jaded. And I will show you a deeply, deeply unhappy person. I will show you a deeply discontent person. So let me ask you, do you have friends or family members or coworkers that have asked you, why are you so cynical? Why are you so jaded? Why, are you, why do you feel like you have to be critical about everything you see? Why can't you just see the good in a situation? Because if people have asked you that, or if you see that in yourself, that should be a giant red flag. Sometimes we don't recognize that we're unhappy because on paper, our life should look, seems to look great. There are times when our life looks great and we're deeply discontent, and the attitude and the place that we're living our lives out of will tell you very clearly how happy or content you really are. If you're someone who's jaded, if you're critical, if you're cynical, why are you so unhappy? What's happened? And look, I am intimately, intimately aware of how the pain of our pasts can wound us, whether by the decisions and actions of others or our own decisions or even things like natural disasters that I have absolutely or we have no, no control over at all. I understand how those moments in our life create deep wounds. And I also understand how oftentimes our go-to is not to address the wounds. 
It's to hide from them. It's to cover just emotion on emotion on emotion over those wounds so we don't have to think about it. And we never actually come to a place of healing or restoration or reconciliation, and we end up miserable. You could be the richest person in the world and also the unhappiest. You could have more friends than you know what to do with and be remarkably discontent. If you're jaded, critical, or cynical, why are you so unhappy? And then the psalmist leads us to really the crux of this entire chapter. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Their delight is on the instruction, on the wisdom of the Lord. And on that wisdom, on that instruction, they are meditating on it. They are thinking about it. They are chewing on it. They are mulling it over like a cow chews cud. Topher, are you really telling me if I read the Bible, my life's going to be better? No, but yes. No, because I realize that we have wounds, that we have brokenness in our lives that we have been ignoring for so long and we don't know what to do with and it scares us to even think about having to deal with it and heal because it's going to dig up other stuff and we don't know what to do with that. So we live in this world where we, we pretend that we're okay. We pretend that we're happy. So I understand that. So no, but yes, because what happens when you begin to dwell in the word of God, when you begin to dwell and just... In, just bathe in the richness of God's instruction and wisdom. You begin to see how it connects to every aspect of your life, and the Spirit of God begins to move in supernatural ways that you will never be able to explain. You will be out with friends. You'll be watching a movie. You'll be at the gym, and something will catch your ear. You will hear a statement, or you'll see a person, and it will remind you of something that you read earlier in the day, or the week before, or a verse that you memorized years ago. And oftentimes when that happens, we just push it away and we keep, we keep going on with our lives. Instead of giving that moment a time to go, I wonder why that's coming into my head, and thinking about it and mulling it over. And when you begin to think and dwell and be in God's wisdom, you begin to delight in his wisdom. And it becomes this infinity loop where the more you delight, the more you want to know and the more you want to rest in it. And the more you rest in it and the more you want to know, the more you delight. And it just keeps going. What the psalmist is doing here is giving us a very black and white binary set of options. And that makes us really uncomfortable. (laughs) And I get it. Barris and I talk all the time. We like nuance. And there's a lot of nuance in the Bible. There's a lot of things you could read in the Bible and go, well, I mean, it could mean this. It could mean that. It could mean this. It could mean that. And then there are moments where it's just real clear and it's very black and white. Psalm 1, very black and white. The psalmist is laying out two paths for us. One that leads to contentment and happiness, flourishing, and the other one leads to withering and decay. And after those examples, the psalmist leads us to this beautiful image of a tree. The person that isn't being formed or shaped by the ungodly or the morally backwards, who isn't intentionally missing the mark, who isn't living their life out of a place of being critical or cynical, but is delighting and resting and learning in the wisdom of God. They are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. And we're going to talk about the word prosper here in a minute. But first, can we talk about trees? Um, <laughs> I geek out about trees hard. Like, 
Like, it makes people uncomfortable because I will start talking about trees and they think I'm talking in another language. Um, I read books intentionally called the, the Secret Life of Trees and the Language of Trees and Where the Trees Meet the Stars and Finding the Mother Tree and How the Trees Transform Lives regularly. I have a top 10 of my favorite trees. That's normal for no one. If you ever want to know what they are, I'm happy to tell you one day or share it with you. Like, I love trees because to me, trees are a beautiful metaphor. And so anytime I'm reading scripture and I see trees, I naturally perk up. And look, trees are everywhere. Water, trees, and birds are the most commonly used illustrations throughout scripture. And I think it's because they are so ordinary and so common. We see them everywhere, right? And yet there's such extraordinary depth and beauty that speaks to the reality of God and humanity. We all know from science class or documentaries or, or reading or having conversations with nerdy people about trees, trees need water to grow. They need carbon dioxide. They need sunlight. They need nutrients. Notice I didn't say soil. Does good soil help a tree take root and grow? Yes, but a tree can grow anywhere. I have a tree growing from my gutter right now because I haven't cleaned them in four years. It's probably four inches thick and at least two feet high. It's doing real well. <laughs> Trees can grow from cliff faces. They can grow from a crack in a sidewalk and completely take that sidewalk away. We see pictures of the trees that have overtaken the temples in Thailand, right? Like, trees can grow anywhere as long as they have the nutrients in the environment to grow. But when you take a tree and you take away the light, it's going to wither and die. If you take a tree and poison the ground, it's going to wither and die. If a tree doesn't have access to water, it's going to wither and die. We are not any different. If our lives are being molded and shaped by darkness, we're going to wither and die. If we're living our lives out of a place of criticism and cynicism and, and just poisoning our own soil, we're going to wither and die, and we don't need to. That's one of the beautiful things about Psalm 1 is that we see a choice. Catch this. A well-rooted life is a transformed life. A well-rooted life is a transformed life. And the reality is, many of our roots, they're just not well-rooted. But it doesn't have to be that way. When we have a well-rooted life, it leads to a life of prospering. And that word prospering is similar to that word blessed. We have this weird mindset that prosper means that anything you touch is going to be gold. You're going to succeed at everything you do in life. You're going to be given whatever you want. You're not going to have any money problems. And you're not going to have any struggle. You're not going to have any pain. You're not going to go through any suffering. That's not what prospering means. It might mean what it means here today in our mindsets. But here in this verse, here in this chapter, this idea of prospering is this idea that even in the darkest, bleakest times of your life, you are still growing, and you are still learning, and you are still able to be a blessing to the people around you. We have this, this mentality with, with trees, 
bear with me, <laughs> deciduous trees, which are the trees that lose their leaves in the autumn. And we're like, oh, it's stick season. The trees are dead. The trees are not dead in winter. The trees are actually thriving in winter. They are growing. They are adapting. They are learning so that they can spring forth with new life and fruit once again to benefit the world around them. That is the reality of winter. Prospering means in those darkest, most despairing times of your life, when there is suffering, when there is pain, when you are questioning everything, when you feel lonely, that when you are dialed in and being bathed in the richness and wisdom of God, you are still growing. You're not in a place of decay. You are actually in a beautiful place of life that's just different than a normal season. If the driving factor in our quest to be happy is to avoid discomfort, pain, and suffering, we are always going to fail. You can be the most controlling person in the world and ask my wife, I am real controlling. <laughs> I like to try and control every aspect of my life because it helps me like believe, even though it's make-believe, that I do have some semblance of control when I don't. Because the reality is, flat tires still happen. Feelings still get hurt. Flights are canceled. Kids don't always listen. People get sick. Natural disasters happen. We live in a world where pain exists. We can't escape it. We can prepare for it. We can protect ourselves to a certain level for it. But if our, our driving force for happiness is our circumstances so that we could avoid any kind of discomfort or pain or suffering, we're going to fail. Psalm 1 continues to point us to this idea that happiness comes from contentment and that you're only going to find that in the kingdom of God. That is what's going to bring hope. That's what's going to bring perspective, resilience, Purpose, fulfillment, flourishing, and wisdom. And then we get to this last part of Psalm 1. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The chaff is um, the outer husk of wheat. And back in the day, what they would do is to separate that, they'd get the wheat and they'd put it in a bowl and take their hand or a rock, kind of mush it around to, to kind of separate the chaff from the wheat. And then they would toss it in the air. And the weight of the wheat berry or the wheat would fall back because of gravity, because it had more weight, whereas the, the husk, the thing that had no life in it left, would get blown away by the wind. That is the idea that it's bringing. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Again, the author is just making this very clear. We have two paths. Here's the fun thing about Psalm 1 to me, because I'm a nerd. Psalm 1 is very much a prequel to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that we read about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we start in chapter 5, begins with the word blessed. And we call it the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it goes through this whole list. That word blessed is the same word that we see used in Psalm 1, starting the exact same way. Then the rest of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is instruction and wisdom and really expanding what does it mean to dwell on the wisdom and instruction of God? What does that mean for us practically in our lives before he finally comes to his point of conclusion at the end of chapter 7 with also giving us two paths, which are the same paths, just with a different example. 
Matthew 17, or 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. The person that hears God's wisdom, that delights in God's wisdom, that rests in God's wisdom and instruction, you were like a tree planted by water. You were like a house built on a rock. But, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You are like chaff. The meaning is the exact same. One path leads to a life of contentment, happiness, and flourishing, and the other leads to fear, withering, and ruin. There is irony to me about the pursuit of happiness. And we all know where we live in America. The pursuit of happiness baked in. That is what we are told. We have the right to pursue happiness. The irony for me is how unsustainable that is. Because what happens is when we pursue happiness, what happens when we get the thing that makes us happy? Are we satisfied? I've never met anyone that is. No, we go, we need more. I want more. I need more. And so we just keep going, and we end up so utterly exhausted and decimated, and we can't figure out why, because we're just getting these quick hits of endorphins from moments of happiness based off of our situations, because we are pursuing it. The other part of irony in, in, in pursuing happiness for me is how often we don't understand how destructive that pursuit actually is. By its very nature, in the West, our pursuit of happiness is selfishly based on what we want, and that is it. Doesn't matter what anyone else wants, doesn't matter what anyone else needs, doesn't matter how anyone else will be affected. What I want matters most, and if I can't be happy, no one else is gonna be happy. That is the world in which we live right now. How is that working out for us? How often have you heard or have you said yourself, just do whatever makes you happy? How has that really worked out? Because from my vantage point, I see people more miserable than ever, more lonely than ever, more stressed out than ever, but they're sure pursuing what they want to bring them happiness. C.S. Lewis once said, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. This back and forth of these two options always point us back to the core idea. Let your behaviors and your identity be shaped by the word of God and his wisdom and his instruction. That is what leads to contentment. That is what leads to actual happiness. That is what leads to a transformed life. But listen, it doesn't happen overnight. I know we're not the most patient of people. We love immediate gratification. But a towering oak does not grow from a seed overnight. A well-rooted life 
does not just happen. It takes patience. It takes intention. So be kind to yourselves. Be gracious to yourselves. But also bring intention. A well-rooted life is a transformed life. And I want nothing more for the world around me to experience the deep happiness and contentment that could only come from God. The only thing that got me out of that season that I opened this whole thing up with is when I actually started to read my Bible again. I didn't even realize that I had stopped. I'm in ministry. I went to Bible college. I know the Bible well. I know how to do word studies and look at Greek and Hebrew and all these nerdy things that no one ever really wants to do because why? And somehow I had gotten into this pattern of my life where I knew a lot, but I was not actually resting in God's word. I wasn't delighting in his word. I wasn't allowing it to transform my life. I wasn't mulling it over. Instead, I was allowing myself to be shaped by the pursuit of happiness that I saw around me. And I just want you to know there's a better way. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for grace. I thank you for forgiveness. I thank you for hope. I thank you that even our deepest wounds and the things we are most scared to tackle, that they can be healed, that we can move to a place of restoration and reconciliation. Lord, more than anything I pray this morning is that your spirit would just reach into our minds and hearts and stir something up inside of us that we wouldn't pursue happiness the way we think we should or the way that's been modeled here in the West. But God, we would chase after you and find contentment in you so that we could finally enjoy what true happiness actually is. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.